The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Thanks for coming tonight. So many of you know we've been looking at Jack Kornfield's relatively new book, The Wise Heart, A Guide to the Universal Teachings of Buddhist Psychology. And we're on chapter four, which is the colorings of consciousness. The last couple of weeks, I talked about consciousness or nature of mind. It's one of these great mysterious topics in the Buddhist teachings. It's like uh, awareness itself. Nobody would debate with me that there is awareness, right? Or that you're aware. But what awareness is or what consciousness is, is really hard to point to or talk about even. We know that there's awareness because I see you, I feel this, I think, and I know that I'm thinking. So we know about the space or a space of awareness, the space of the mind, because of the objects that are being known. But the objects aren't the space of awareness. Awareness illuminates objects or knows objects. But what is the knowing itself, that space of awareness? So that was the last chapter, chapter three in this book. And the Buddhist principle that of psychology that Jack Hornfield outlines or puts forward in that chapter is something like, if we move our attention from the objects of experience, what's being known, what's being thought, what's being felt, to the knowing itself, wisdom arises. That's sort of a provocative statement right there. Now the next chapter is really about the colorings of consciousness. So we have this fundamentally free, effortless, mysterious happening we call awareness. Like the Buddha said, luminous is consciousness, brightly shining is its nature. But it becomes clouded by attachments that visit it, right? Luminous, brightly shining, essentially free, but this essential freedom becomes clouded by attachments, by the habit of the mind to fixate or get identified. It gets caught by the different objects, whether the object is a thought that's arising or the object is something happening in what we call the external world, like in front of me. But in any case, the mind, in a sense, is entrapped. The heart mind is entrapped through the process of getting identified or attached to some experience, some object of awareness. And the Buddha has you know, many different maps, and these maps overlap. It's not like one map for this part of reality and another map for a different part. But most of the maps are, are basically different ways of illuminating or explaining one's lived experience. And one map has this great title called The All. <laughs> The Buddha wasn't shy about naming his maps, or you know, like the all meaning, this is how it is. 
And in this particular map, and like I said, there are different ways the Buddha would explain the all or the our experience. He talks about the six sense bases, right? Where we have sensitivity in six ways. We see, we hear, we smell, we taste, we experience touches, and we experience mental activity. We're aware of mental activity. And the combination of these sensitivities with consciousness itself, right? It's not enough to um, have an eyeball and a visual experience, but there has to be consciousness. Consciousness is a bit like, like it's an ignition. You know, you have an eye, you have a sight, you know, and the eye sees the sight. And when those two, when the eye that works sees a sight, then the working, the sort of recognition of that visual object, that is what we call consciousness. Consciousness is the actual illumination or the actual knowing of the object, the sensory object, like the eyeball, or I mean the sensory organ, the eyeball, and the object coming together. So we've got this, you know, he's just describing the mecha mechanism of awareness. We've got sensitivity and we have this thing called consciousness. And now then he adds a third piece to this model called the all, which are mind states. Now in a way mind states are just, they can be with practice, just another object that's being illuminated by consciousness. Like we have sadness, consciousness knows sadness. In a sense, it illuminates it as something being known. And that would be a mind state, right? It would be some mental activity. Sadness or any emotion, any mind state is, would be that sixth sense gate, not one of the five physical senses, but the mind knowing mind activity, as opposed to the mind knowing sound or smell or taste or touch or sight. So this third category then, though he talks about his mind states, different colorings of the mind. Now, some mental states are always there. They're just, like there's always perception. Perception is always happening. Memory is always happening. And then other mind states are wholesome. And, and then the other set, of course, are unwholesome mind states. And you see, when, it, when we're in this place where we have sensitivity that's being known, you know, objects that are being known, it's all being filtered or colored by the particular mind states. Like when we have wholesome mind states, then our experience is being filtered in a particular way. When we're having unwholesome mind states, it gets filtered in a different way. And I'll just list some of the, I mean, you, we could generate these on our own, but the three roots of, un, of the unwholesome mind states would be grasping, aversion, and delusion. And then the three roots of all the wholesome states would be non-grasping, or generosity, non-aversion, which would be kindness, non-delusion, which would be clarity, or wisdom, or mindfulness. And so Jack Kornfield just lists some of the <clears throat> expressions of the unwholesome, right? Grasping, aversion, and delusion give rise to worry, envy, rigidity, 
agitation, greed, self-centeredness, hate, avarice or stinginess, shamelessness, dullness, closed-mindedness, confusion, misperception, recklessness, and of course others. And then the healthy states, mindfulness or clarity or wisdom, which is the opposite of delusion, generosity or simplicity, which is the opposite of greediness, and uh, kindness, which is the opposite of aversion, give rise to mindfulness, confidence, graciousness, modesty, joy, insight, flexibility, clarity, equanimity, adaptability, kindness, and others. But this is really our assignment, I mean, both because we're sort of following along in these series of talks, but more specifically, our assignment because we're a human being, probably, that's interested in understanding our experience, the nature of our experience, how it all works. And in particular, we're interested in how it is that we end up suffering, how it is we end up stressed and burdened by life, and how it is at other times we end up feeling quite buoyant and alive and free and loving and clear in life. And why is it this way sometimes and this other way other times? Is it just haphazard? Or is there something that I can discern, understand, so <clears throat> I'm increasing the probability of mo moments of buoyancy and clarity and love and decreasing the moments of feeling stressed out and hateful and needy and heavy and burdened by life. And so the reason the Buddha like has a map called the All, where he talks about objects of and objects being known, and the filters, the mind states that filter that give a tone to those experiences, is it illuminates something about suffering and the end of suffering. And those of you who've done any readings of the actual talks of the Buddha, over and over and over again, he emphasized that I teach only one thing, suffering or stress, you could say, and the end of stress. So as a spiritual teacher, he wasn't interested in sort of laying down some metaphysical uh, explanation for the way that it is, but only if only giving teachings or pointing outs that have to do with our actual experience of stress and how it can end. How it doesn't need to be that way. And so, you know, our job is, you know, one of the things the Buddha would point out is how in order to be happy, our strategy to be happy has been mostly about different experiences, trying to get different experiences and get rid of other experiences. But with this new map, which is really the map of the mind and how the mind is, the nature of the mind, then it's really a shift from trying to create happiness by getting the experiences we think will create happiness to understanding that actually the, the root of happiness or the proximate cause for happiness has a lot more to do with the way the mind is than it has to do with the particular life situation or experience we're having. And this is, again, really a provocative statement. It's just so easy to come back 
to that statement with, well, yeah, but if you were drowning, you know, let me see you make that a happy experience. Or, you know, if you're living in poverty, or, you know, how are you going to be happy in that experience? So I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> but, <clears throat> but what we want to do, because those hypotheticals, I used to, I, I had some teachers that, you know, wouldn't answer hypothetical questions and always sort of push my buttons. But now I understand. Because, <laughs> because they're hard to answer. <laughs> and it's, it's missing the point. You know, the whole, the whole focus or the whole direction of the practice is to the here and now. So <clears throat> let's answer that question in the here and now. Like in any moment, we, according to the Buddha, we have mind states that are filtering our experience. We're living out of particular views or mind states. And the question is, can we recognize those mind states? Can we get a sense if the mind state is constricting or freeing? And can we get a sense that the mind states generally come and go? And this coming and going, right? Like, we've all been sad, but are we sad right now? We've all been really happy at times in our life, but are we happy right now? So whatever mind states we've had in the past, clearly they come and go. Well, how do they come and go? What is the nature of that coming and going? Is it random? Is it lawful? And if it's lawful, how does a human being skillfully participate in the coming and going of mind states? Like skillfully participate in the abandoning and preventing of unwholesome states from arising, or skillfully participating in the developing and maintaining of wholesome states. And the thing is, we really understand, when we start looking, we really understand the power of this. And we begin to make that transition from uh, always being fixated or obsessed with controlling the conditions of our life controlling or trying to have certain sense experiences to being more interested in how the sense experiences that we are having, how they're being understood or how they're being related to. Through what mind state are we experiencing the experiences we're having? So you see the difference? We can live a life focused on getting certain sense experiences or we can live a life devoted to uh, understanding skillful ways of relating to the sense experiences that are arising for us. It's very different. And you could say the first is a typical, appropriate animal approach to life. That's what animals do. Of course, we're, an, we're an animal. Animals are struggling to have certain sense experiences and avoid others. I mean, I'm just, I'm just defining animal nature as that. And so, as a human being, we have this capacity to recognize our animal nature, right? Because it stands out. We can, through you know, the capacity of our mind to be aware, to be awake, we can, in a sense, shine a light on how our mind is, and we can see, oh, I'm constantly trying to have pleasant experiences and get rid of unpleasant experiences. We can just see that as being our basic 
strategy in life. Without judging it as good or bad, we're just understanding that's how it is. And we can look a lot around, you know, the wider world of animals, creatures, and we see, well, basically everybody, all the creatures are doing that. That's what they do. And we can see, because we have, you know, we can, uh, we can sort of get a sense of how it is, how it's unfolding. We can see how limiting that approach is. There's no real rest in that approach to happiness, is there? Because we have a, a sense, we finally get a pleasant sense experience that we want and got rid of the ones we don't want. But then, you know, then there's the next moment where we want, we're going to need another nice sense experience and we have to, again, avoid, get rid of the unpleasant ones. So it's a approach to living that requires constant tending. It never ends. And so there's a, there, it may be like a relatively pleasant life versus other creatures who ever are having a relatively unpleasant life, like those who live in Minnesota in January, you know. But uh, but there's we're never really free from life as a struggle. Life remains a struggle, and we are either relatively successful at that struggle or not in any given moment. Now, this other approach is really looking at the mind that's knowing the experience. And in particular, we're not so concerned with this more mechanistic part where there's sensitivity and this natural capacity to know that sensitivity, right? That's the two-thirds of the all. And we get really interested in this middle third of the all, which is the mind states that are coloring that more mechanistic part, where there's sensitivity in these six ways, sight, sound, smells, taste, touches, and the mind knowing thought, the mind knowing mental activity. These are the six ways we're sensitive to our world, right? In no other way are we sensitive to the world. So that's the sort of mechanistic piece. As long as we're alive, we're sensitive in these six ways, and consciousness illuminates those sets of experiences. However, there's a third piece, which is this illumination is being colored by visiting mind states, mind states that come and go. No mind state has stayed forever, right? Everyone agree to that? So given that they come and go, and given that some mind states are clearly afflictive, meaning when they're there, it really doesn't matter what the sense experience is, life hurts. And other mind states are the opposite. No matter what's going on, life feels good. Like when, when the, the mind state of love, or universal love or compassion, is really the strong filter through which we're experiencing life, it doesn't really matter if terrible things are happening. The love, more than just making it tolerable, it's a beautiful thing. Now, what's going on around us may not be a beautiful thing, but the love or the compassion itself is a beautiful thing. So we have this, we're being invited, you know, by the Buddha to do our homework, you know, and in Buddhism, the homework always involves the present moment 
And even more specifically, it involves the mind, how the mind is, what the mind's doing in the present moment, as the real ground of happiness and unhappiness. It's completely different than our normal approach, which is to focus on objects around us in order to create happiness for ourselves, get rid of unhappiness. This is a famous passage. Many of you have heard it before. There's a collection of verses somebody with back when, a couple thousands of years ago, went through all of the different talks the Buddha gave and pulled out the pithy verses and put them into a collection called the Dhammapada. And the first stanzas in the Dhammapada, some of the more famous lines from the Buddha, go like this. All experiences preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experiences preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never departing shadow. Well, this is not so much answering it theoretically, but this is such an appropriate reflection for us. Is this actually true? Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never departing shadow. I mean, is happiness really this easy? And what do we mean? What does he mean by speak or act with a peaceful mind? I mean, my sense of it, peaceful mind, is just a stand-in for wholesome states of mind. You know, Because when we're really loving or compassionate, there's a peace with all wholesome states of mind. Like that list I read, Jack Hornfield's list of the healthy states or the wholesome states, mindfulness, confidence, graciousness, modesty, joy, insight, flexibility, clarity, equanimity, adaptability, kindness, and others. In a way, wholesome states, so, and think again of wholesome states or these mind states as the coloring or filter through which we're experiencing the experience of the moment, whatever it is that's uh, rising or predominant in that moment. So what sort of filter allows for a sense of ease and happiness, wholeness, or whatever, however you experience happiness? What sort of filter promotes how you understand happiness to be? Wouldn't that be a, an important thing to understand, the relationship between the particular view or mind state we're living out of and the experience of happiness. Like, for example, if we really got that being irritable or hateful or aversive always led to suffering, to being stressed or feeling burdened by life, we wouldn't intentionally sort of uh, get identified or take up that attitude. We wouldn't consider hatred or aversion a functional mind state. But now, you know, as an ordinary human being, doesn't it occur to us a lot of the time that it's appropriate to be angry? 
it's appropriate to be irritated. She did this to me, or it's this way. And it just, it feels like uh, it would be inappropriate to be something other than irritable or aversive. So this is, this is really our job. These oppressive, afflictive mind states seem rational. They seem appropriate only because we actually are misperceiving them. We haven't taken a close look at them. When's the last time? Like when we have a, uh, an afflictive mind state, whether it's grasping something, really needing, wanting something to happen, or being aversive, we're so, in a sense, fixated on the objects of that mind state, we don't get interested in the mind state itself. And that's the piece that's missing. What are the implications of this mind state? And the thing is, when, even when we do notice that there's a mind state, we tend to immediately see it as self. So the first step is now, before the mind states are particularly strong and oppressive, just to get in the habit of recognizing the different mind states, different attitudes, different moods, different emotions, and see them in an impersonal way, like visiting weather systems that have floated into the empty space of the mind. We've got this sort of very beautiful natural system of the mind illuminating sense experience. And on top of that, you know, different weather systems float in. Oppressive weather systems, bright, cheery weather systems. And it has, you know, completely affects our reality. So we can, uh, yeah, we can take it as our responsibility because we care about our life to get to know that. Jack Kornfeld has this nice image. And this is just an important premise. When you start to notice your different mind states, it's almost like you're developing a vocabulary where you can very quickly recognize, oh, this is sadness. This is irritation. This is love. This is joy. This is gratitude. This is graciousness. This is envy, this is jealousy, this is neediness, this is craving. You know, and it's it's like it's like every you know, different people in the room have different skills, and if you have a particular skill set, you might have a particular vocabulary that none of us have. Like some of you are musicians, right? And you know, somebody can sing a note and you'll know oh, that's a C or that's a this or a that. And the rest of us would be clueless. And we want to be this way with mind states. We want to become the world's expert on the predominant mind states that come and go in this mind. You know, we're not so concerned about other people's minds. This mind. And the thing is, simply knowing the mindset that come and go is a real step towards skillfulness. The principle that Jack Kornfield states in this chapter four, he says, recognize the mental states that fill consciousness, shift from unhealthy states to healthy ones. Now, he doesn't say, well, how do you shift from healthy to unhealthy? But the, the, 
the uh, predominant skill or the, the basic skill that's necessary is simply to notice mind states. Because there's this principle, and you can check it out for yourself. When you have a simple, clear recognition that sadness is like this, so let's say you're sad, or you're irritable, or you're jealous, some unskillful state, and now you recognize it, it's there, it's like you're noticing the weather system in the, in the vast, empty sky of the mind. And you're just noticing their sadness. What happens to afflictive states of mind when you see them as afflictive states of mind? And he uses the image like sunlight on fog. How sunlight on fog causes the fog to evaporate. Well, it's the same thing. When we're mindful of unwholesome states of mind, they fall apart. Mindfulness itself, of course, is a wholesome mind state. And unwholesome mind states and wholesome mind states can't exist at the same time in, in the same mind. Because unwholesome states of mind, by definition, this is sort of tautological, by definition, unwholesome states of mind are constricting. They, the mind, in a sense, forgets its vast, empty, boundless quality, nature. And it feels, in a sense, embedded in that particular problem that that mind state has created. So mind states create personal problems in a way that the mind gets caught up or embedded in the problem, becomes who or what it is. That's who I am. I am the mad guy. I am the needy person. I am the person who's been, you know, hurt and, and I need to get revenge. And that is a constricted state. And of course, when we're constricted in that way, the expansiveness of love, of calm, of clarity, or any other wholesome state of mind, it's just, they're, they're opposites, so they can't coexist. And of course, you know, it always seems this way, but I think it's really true. The wholesome states are more powerful than the unwholesome states. So when you bring a wholesome state of mind to help you understand or see or know an unwholesome state of mind, the unwholesome state of mind will fall apart. And again, this is something to reflect on. I mean, to really play with in your life. And delusion as an unwholesome mind state is the mind state that says, why bother? This will never work. Right? So the fact of you not doing this is because you're under the influence of delusion as a mind state. Because delusion is a kind of arrogant state of mind that basically says, I already know how it is. I'm upset. I'm angry. I'm needy. I'm, you know, whatever. The world's a, you know, a B-I-T-C-H. It's... And, and then the arrogance that that's just how it is. And so delusion is the particular mind state that keeps us from reflecting on the nature of mind states, how they work, how they come and go, and how to skillfully participate being a creature with mind states, and not to feel helpless to the particular mind state that's visiting right now, trapped by it. So we have to really test out in the next couple of weeks 
this, whether this is true. In some way, bringing a wholesome state to the mind, to the mind states that are present, and see what happens. And really develop the confidence that you can, uh, you know how the mind works. And then we can really uh, reflect on that statement, you know, speak or act with a wholesome state of mind, a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. I mean, what this is suggesting is that not only is happiness possible for human beings, but a continuous happiness is possible. Now, there is absolutely no reason that we wouldn't be interested in this, right? I mean, unless we're insane, we'd be interested. And not that we should believe this is true, but certainly it's worth checking out. And, you know, the interesting thing is, even people, there are some people clearly who have, who have objectively speaking, unpleasant life situations who seem to be really happy. You know, a lot of people like traveling to less developed, economically developed places where people have fewer things and deal with uh, more unpleasant life conditions. And because one of the reasons people like to travel is they bump into people who seem to be incredibly happy living a life where their physical conditions seem less pleasant. And it sort of blows their mind. It does. It blows our mind when we see that. Well, how can that be? What's going on there? Because we're so convinced that we need this in order to be happy. I mean, this is why people like to go backpacking or do different things. It's just, it sort of blows our mind that I can be happy that mac and cheese for the third night in a row can taste so good <laughs> or whatever you cook when you're backpacking. You know, these, where, you know, when we're in town, it's like, oh, I don't want to go to that place, you know, their Indian food, that's just not nearly as good as this other place. We can be so, like, happiness only when we're getting exactly what we want. I noticed this last night, I went home after the program and, you know, we had a lot of good things in the refrigerator, but you know, it wasn't what I wanted. <laughs> but in a way, they were amazing things. I mean, they're made organic food, you know, things I would have really liked, but just not now. <laughs> and it's amazing how we can create suffering out of some the kind of conditions that we have. So clearly, how our mind is has so much to do with that. So maybe I'll leave it here. We'll pick it up next week, but I want to save some time. I'm assuming that... You have a lot to say about this, having a mind with visiting mind states, some afflictive, some beautiful. What have you learned, or what questions do you have about this? Yeah, if, please say your name. My name is Aaron. Aaron? Um, I'm just, like, if, if, I'm, if I want to say I want to say something nice to someone, I want to be generous. So I switch the filter that my mind's going through. Instead of thinking of what I'm giving them so much, I, I switch it to thinking, no, that's not that much. So I feel better about giving it to that. That's sort of like manipulating, it's like playing a game with my mind. Mm -hmm. So, but in the end, I'm doing the generous thing, you know. But what I'm wondering, I guess like, isn't it all manipulation of how you see? Yeah, it's a really good question. And the thing we have to understand is right now we're manipulating the mind, but we're doing it unconsciously. It's simply driven by habit.
the manipulation. It's total manipulation, but it's just driven by our predominant habits. So then what we do is we, in a sense, wake up to what's currently happening unconsciously out of habit. Now we wake up and we consciously start to participate. I'm using a nicer word. Instead of manipulate, I use participate. But that's not the end of the practice, but it's a step in the right direction to consciously participate in something that's currently happening blindly, where how we uh, respond or are influenced by our mind state, we're unconscious. We're still affected by our mind states, but we're not consciously participating in how we're affected by them. Now we're consciously starting to consciously participate. The more we do that, the more a basic principle emerges in the mind, which is the most wholesome mind state at all of all is basically no filter. That the the development of love and wisdom, as you distill love and wisdom in the more pure state, so that we're getting more happiness, more ease, more freedom, is it ends up being the absence you could say the absence of a mind state, uh, or mind state as a filter. So that's why we have words like emptiness in Buddhism. It's not like you disappear, like there's no existence. But it's specifically referring to the, um, the mind not being caught by mind states, not having to do that manipulation anymore. So it's a, a dropping away of any participation. But at first, we have to get good at participation before it dawns on the mind that the participation itself is stressful. But first, we want to learn that lesson when we're really good at the participation. And we've, in a sense, we've gone to the nth degree. Like We've gotten really good at maintaining loving states of mind, generous states of mind, clear states of mind. And then we start to recognize it's a burden to always have to be vigilant and be developing and maintaining wholesome states of mind. And something else then begins to happen at that point in practice. Yeah, thanks for the good question. Yeah. Uh, Sarah, um, I kept wanting you to give concrete examples mm-hmm. um, during the talk. And so when you talked about refri- standing in front of the refrigerator and not wanting anything that was in there. And so now my question is, how did you get out of that? Yeah, I I tried to find, I mean, I thought of going shopping, (laughs) but the co-op was closed. It was after 9.30. Um, I mean, I think what I did, I just found something to eat. I forget. I can't even remember what it was. Um, Well, you you understand. Yeah, but but the, the, I think the the key is for us to recognize that, um, that we're, we don't have to be entrapped. So when we have a mind state like, I forget what it was I wa- even wanted that night, but it was something specific that I wanted. And so that, that desire, the craving, created a particular reality for me, which is something like, I'm not going to be happy unless I have that. And that made, in order for that mind state to make sense, I couldn't be happy now because I didn't have it. I could only be happy if I got it. And uh, so I think what I do, and you know, to some degree I did this, this last night, is it's basically questioning that reality. 
When we question that reality in a way the mind has done this certain move where it stepped back and it sees that story, that reality, I'm the one who's not happy because I don't have this and I won't be happy until I get this. It's seeing it as a present moment entity. When we observe it, like witness it, then we're not caught in it. So taking a step back with mindfulness and observing the, oh, I want this, you know, and we see that, not in a dismissive way, but we're just seeing it. It's, it's literally like observing another creature. These different habits of mind have an integrity like a, a creature does. You know how that is. Like We literally get trapped in these different states, and it's like a creature. But we can step back, and we can see it, and we can care about it and not hate it or not be afraid of it, but just care about it because it is it is a mind state. It is a pattern, a mental, emotional pattern. It has its integrity, and it's afflictive only when we're lost inside of it. But when we step back, we have some distance, and then we can sort of check out, well, what's really going on here? Is there hunger? Is it is that, that the mind just wants entertainment? Well, what kind of wholesome entertainment? What sort of entertainment wouldn't have any negative consequences for me? Then it's a lot easier to make a skillful choice. Well, you know, I just want, you know, just the entertainment of taste and chewing. You know, I'm a creature that finds simple pleasure in chewing, swallowing, and tasting. So what could I do that wouldn't, you know, be harmful? And that's, that's sort of what I did. I can't remember what I ate, though. <laughs> I think it was chips and salsa. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my name's Lauren. Um, and I have a question. I'm wondering, so I've been working on this for a year. Like, I've become very good at identifying like, what that like, self-judgment is, or, oh, I'm doing that again, I'm doing that again. And, and I understand how you say a lot of that develops um, you know, from way back when those are habits. Mm-hmm. So are you suggesting that Perhaps. But the key is when you recognize it, you want to recognize those unwholesome states with a wholesome state. Because it's very easy to get good at recognizing the unwholesome states with an unwholesome state. An unwholesome state like judgment, for example. It's really easy. Oh, another unwholesome state of mind. (laughs) But then what we're doing is, and it's very easy for Buddhist practice to become more of the same. We're basically reinforcing old patterns. We're just doing it on a more subtle level. So instead of hating ourselves for gaining weight or hating ourselves for messing up here, we're hating ourselves for having this mind state or that mind state or not having the good mind states, things like that. So... The key is understanding what the experience of mindfulness is. So when you identify that state, it's really the that you're all of a sudden you've already flipped the mind to a wholesome state. Because you can't recognize the unwholesome state with mindfulness unless you're in a wholesome place. Mindfulness is a beautiful, wholesome state of mind. It's already a liberated mind state. There's already a sense of freedom when we're mindful. If you're not experiencing freedom, you're not being mindful. That's sort of provocative. I mean, I'm not, all these years I haven't been practicing, but it's really true. A moment of mindfulness is liberating. It feels good. And uh, so, uh, now, sometimes there's some mind, you would, 
it's not so much like they're both existing at the same time, but we have an a instant of mindfulness and three instances of judgment. You know, and so it seems like we're being mindful, but we don't realize that we're also being judgmental. And the mind states can move very quickly, which is amazing in and of itself. So the, another answer to your question, Laurie, is that if we can be mindful of afflictive states, it doesn't matter so much whether they go away, does it? Because that simple, loving, beautiful presence with anger, with whatever the unwholesome state is, it's already beautiful. So then, see, this is why this practice really works. What will really allow those unwholesome state, states of mind to fall away is when they're no longer fed by attachment, identification. And when we can be mindful, and then it doesn't matter whether they come and go, because we know how to be with them, then we're really not feeding them. That as long as we're afraid of those unwholesome states, we're feeding them. So being identified with anger is one way to feed it. Hating the fact that we're angry is another way to feed it. Both will feed it. It's only when we're equanimous that we're not feeding it, those things will fade away. They'll get less uh, recurrent. So if you really want them to go away, become equanimous about whether they come or go. Then they, they die through lack of being fed. They fall away. They eventually don't come as often, and then eventually not at all. Those afflictive states. Yeah, Jana. When I hear some of this, this is part of me that thinks, okay, well, that means that no matter what the experience is, I should go into it and be equanimous. But I know the Buddha advocated for sort of not going places that bring up afflictive mind states. So mm -hmm. how do you just decide yeah, what's yeah. the right? Well, remember, like in, it's Lori, right? Yeah, when Lori's comment, the key is always, in every moment, the answer is always the same, which is, can I relate with a wholesome mind state? Or how, how can I participate in a way that promotes, develops, and, and maintains wholesome states of mind? So it's always about wholesome states of mind. Now, mindfulness is one of the easiest wholesome states of mind to reinitiate because uh, we learn in, in life how functional it is and how available it is because the very nature of the mind is mindfulness, is awareness. So it's more, it's not about so much doing something like I've got to be wholesome. It's more like falling back into this capacity to see things as they are and learning to trust that move of sort of reigniting mindfulness by resting in it. So we, but there are a lot of ways to reignite wholesome states of mind. And so you're right. It's not so much about going into the unwholesome states as it is about uh, bringing up, finding a wholesome state of mind. But when there's something really afflictive, it can be, it can be hard to generate a wholesome state unless it's a wholesome state that's addressing the afflictive state of mind. So that's why mindfulness is often opening to that unwholesome state. It's not so much about going into the unwholesome state is, as it is about initiating, activating a wholesome state of mindfulness, which is going to want to know what's happening. That's what mindfulness does. It opens to the way it is in the moment. So it will go into that unwholesome 
state, it will illuminate it. But the mindfulness itself is beautiful. Does that make sense? I know it's a little, it seems a little paradoxical. But, but in terms of your question, you're absolutely right. We want to uh, learn about what are wholesome states of mind and how to develop and maintain them. That's our first and form- foremost, going back to what Aaron, is it? Aaron said. Uh, that's our first and foremost responsibility is to consciously participate in the development and maintenance of wholesome states and abandoning and preventing unwholesome states. We get really good at that before the deeper insights arise, which is how to, um, how to free up the burden of having to be skillful. But first we want to get really good at being skillful. And then we, then we can go beyond that sort of weight of having to be skillful. Yeah, Tom. Um, the point that you've made uh, on the side of this, you know, to bring a wholesome state of mind, to dissipate an unwholesome state of mind, but the kind of side point you made is, you know, can you be that guy or that woman um, that can kind of like sort of be okay in the meantime? Mm-hmm. This, this was very helpful for me. Like, the, as the holidays were coming, you know, it was a, my dad is here and my sister's there and I'm here and he's telling her this and it's, I mean, it's one of those, you don't have to really know all of it. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's one of those things, but I, I could feel it was different this time because I said, what's the, what's the sweet spot here? What's the skillful way? And just, just that much sitting back, it was, it's still difficult. I mean, it's, yeah. it's still, whatever, it's still, uh, there's still some unwholesome, unskillful habits that are still going on, but I just at least had this slight comfort in like, well, instead of having to um, somehow figure it out and say, you know, they go back to me being, you know, 14 or 24, 34, uh-huh. whatever, say, my dad is this way, my sister's this way, you know, like, they kind of lock in and they find your, you know, find your little label for that moment and say, oh, this is Okay, like, yeah, this yeah, is my yeah. story and I'm sticking to it. Like, I I don't really know, but I'm just going to try to keep, you know, I'm going to try to be, try to do what a wise guy, a wise person would do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, I'm not sure what that is, but this is not going to be it. Yeah. yeah, that's very good. And, I, and, you know, it's hard to label that, but there is this... Uh, we, we learn this backward step, like how to fall back into wholesome states of mind. Like I really picked up when you were talking, like somehow intuitively, without you even knowing how you're doing it, you're learning how to fall back into equanimity. And the thing is, we sort of trust it, but we also sort of trust, you know, that my sister's this way, my dad's this way. And so it's a little bit of a battle, but that's okay because we're developing more and more trust of resting in equanimity, resting in awareness that it's like this. That is a wholesome state of mind. That it feels almost like nothing. But that's actually an insight. The more you start visiting consciously wholesome states of mind, develop a taste for what that's like. And you'll see that wholesome states of mind are almost like nothing. And isn't that interesting? (laughs) You know? And unwholesome states of mind seem so much more solid and real 
And the wholesome state seems so much more ephemeral and as if it's nothing at all. And don't get confused by your insight. That's an insight, meaning an insight in Buddhism means you're seeing things as they are. You're seeing things that you haven't seen before about the nature of the mind. And this is like what you're describing. It's almost what I picked up, Tom, is that it's like, because I know this feeling, it's hard to trust that equanimity. It's hard to trust being right in the middle of this family dukkha, this family stress, and just letting it be. You know, and and not, not sort of distancing yourself from it, being right in the middle of it, but not being upset that it's entrenched like this. And it's paradoxical, because the family situation, the actual experience hasn't changed. But the mind that's aware of it has changed and is changing through your practice. And this is the thing about insight. It's intuitive. The ego does not own it. So it's so easy to second-guess practice because it's not like you can point to some degree you've got because you've graduated from this level of Buddhist practice and you're on to this level. And a lot of systems, you know, a lot of groups sort of point, you know, uh, emphasize like progress, linear progress. But, and I'm not saying that the path doesn't develop, that we don't become wiser. But it's not something you can point to. One phrase someone came up with is creeping spaciousness. It kind of creeps up on us. Wisdom, equanimity, love. It just seems to be permeating our mind states more and more. And the afflictive states seem to be more porous and less solid, less real, less convincing. Yeah, maybe one last comment, Brenda. Um, sometimes I think that um, spaciousness kind of feels like well, it's the near enemy because it looks like it. The thing about detachment, you know, is that we're, it, there's, if we look carefully, we'll see that we're afraid of getting contaminated by the messy world. So we're going to distance ourselves from our own afflictive states of mind, our own habits, or the messiness around us. And the, the way that we uh, prevent detachment is uh, the deepening understanding of what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is as as an experience of being open or undefended. And uh, and so one of the nice things about sitting still, for example, is, you know, we get body pain. And then, you know, we can distance ourselves by getting lost in a fantasy. And it's amazing. Like you could be so afflicted by body pain, knee pain, back pain, and then you get a good fantasy going. And you can, that fantasy can go for half an hour, and you have no problem sitting. But if you're mindful, it can be really difficult to stay in the sit. And so this is the thing about mindfulness. It's really bringing us right into the middle of things. So the equanimity we're interested in is, like Tom described, you know, being there, interacting with her, his dad, his sister, but not uh, being as burdened or weighed down by it. But we're going to get confused by that, detachment versus non-attachment. So we generally use the word non-attachment, non-identification, instead of you know, detachment or any kind of, uh, um, of any subtle kind of aversion, like the world is messy, I want out of here. 
Well, see, then, then you really want to, you don't, don't, don't assume that it's actually unwholesome. There's only one way to notice whether a state of mind is unwholesome. By definition, unwholesome states hurt. So get interested. Does it hurt? Then why do you think it's unwholesome? Does it make you less functional as a human being? You know, skillful, responding appropriately. So really be careful because uh, equanimity, we don't really, when equanimity starts getting stronger and stronger, it can feel weird because we're different than we used to be. We used to be reactive and now we're becoming more and more equanimous and it can feel like we've done something wrong. I often share the story of being on a three-month retreat and for several days, equanimity just had started to get very strong. It was unfamiliar to me. I was really confused by the state. And I started to have a lot of doubt, like I was doing something wrong, feeling uh, calm in a different kind of way and disconnected in a different kind of way. Finally, after a few days, you know, I really looked at it. Instead of just assuming I was doing something wrong, and I really looked at it, and I realized it was functional, it was pleasant, it wasn't harming anybody. This was... And it's just like a thunderbolt. Oh, it's equanimity. <laughs> like, duh. <laughs> but that's how it is sometimes. As these wholesome states come online, they, they can be quite unfamiliar at that level, you know, at that particular strength. Yeah, thanks, Brenda. And let's leave it here. Just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.